But I want to deal with a few verses here from the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we'll take a few moments this morning. And I want to start reading in verse 38. Now in this Sermon on the Mount, in this particular section of it, Jesus sort of divides his thoughts. Our Lord will divide his thoughts with a little formula that he'll use. In verse 21, he'll say, you have heard that it has or that it was said. And then in verse 27, you have heard that it was said. In verse 31, it hath been said. In verse 33, again, you have heard that it hath been said. In verse 38, you have heard that it hath been said. And in verse 43, you have heard that it hath been said. That's his formula to give us an idea uh, of what, uh, what the subject is or a division in this portion. And in verse 38, he's going to deal with um, the law of retaliation. And I want us to think about it for a moment and uh, we'll start in verse 38. The Bible said, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Now I want to use these verses for a moment. As I mentioned to you, this is the law of retaliation, and we can learn some things about how to deal with our enemies. But I want to go a little bit further and perhaps a little deeper tonight or this morning. And I want to preach for a few moments from this passage on the supreme blessedness of Christ our King. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. We pray you'll help us now in the preaching of the Word of God. Thank you for everything you've done in my heart this morning already. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord. I pray now, Lord, that you will speak again to me and to all them that are here and I pray you'd be glorified because, Lord, if you get glorified, we'll get helped. So help us now in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we could take some time this morning, we will not do so, but we could take time to explain a little bit about what's going on in this passage, what it means and what it doesn't mean. But I'll just read you a quote uh, from a man um, uh, by the name of uh, Arno C. Gableine, he said this, in these three chapters, we shall always in every part look upon the Sermon on the Mount as the proclamation of the king concerning the kingdom. The kingdom is not the church, nor is it the state of the earth in righteousness governed and possessed by the meek or brought about by the agency of the church, but rather it is the millennial earth and the kingdom to come in which Jerusalem will be the city of a great king. Now, I read you that for this reason. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're going to see a picture of Jesus here. He is telling us what the kingdom will be like. He's giving us principles that apply to our lives right now, but this is we might say the manifesto of the king. And one of the things I enjoy about this is Jesus is not a king like a politician that we have today. Politicians we have today ask us to do things that they are not willing to do and never would do. But Jesus will never ask us to do anything for him that he has not already done for us. He is a wonderful king. Now, when we start out in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we have the blessings, the Beatitudes. Then we move on to 
to these principles. I want to think about the blessedness of Christ. And here's what happened to me. I was reading a book by a man named Robert Hawker. He wrote a, a series of books, commentaries called The Poor Man's Commentary. And when I saw the title of it, I thought, well, he wrote that for me. So I, I thought I better read it. And I'm reading through what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. And he came to verse 38. And here's what the verse says again. You have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And when I read that, then I looked to see what Mr. Hawker said about it. And here's what he said. He said, what spiritual man can read this law about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and not see Jesus? And I shook my head and I thought to myself, I must not be a very spiritual man because I'm having a little bit of trouble seeing Jesus in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And so I thought about it and I considered it and I asked the Lord to help me. And here's here's what I, I want us to look at. I want us in each one of these verses to see a picture of Christ. Now this is the law of retaliation, these verses. And I would say this to you at the outset. This is how we're supposed to deal with our enemies. And I want to say to you, when I think about how God in heaven deals with his enemies, I want to say hallelujah, glory to God, because all of us were enemies of God and all of us should have been destroyed and all of us should have been in hell, but thank God for grace and thank God for mercy. Thank God for Calvary. Thank God for the blood and thank God for a savior. Now you say, preacher, is Jesus in this verse? I believe he is. I want you to think about it. And I for an eye. Now, somebody say, well, God is a God of vengeance. And it is true, he said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But this not verse was not given so that you would take an eye for an eye, but it was given that it might limit us in what we take when we have been wronged. It was limitation. But I want you to think about this. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I thought about my eyes. I thought of all the wicked things my eyes have seen over my life. I thought of all the wicked things my eyes have gazed upon and looked at when I was lost. Our brother spoke about it a little bit in Sunday school. But here's what I want to say to you. I see in this verse the principle of substitution and the blessedness of substitution because every wicked thing my eye ever gazed upon, his eye paid for on the cross of Calvary. Every wicked deed these hands have ever committed, his hands paid for on the cross of Calvary. Every wicked place these feet ever carried me to. His feet paid for on the cross of Calvary. Every wicked thought that's ever gone through this mind, his mind paid for on the cross of Calvary. I would like to say to you, Christ was nailed to the cross so that I could be forgiven. His eyes for mine, his heart for mine, his hands for mine. It is the blessedness of the substitutionary death of Christ. It should have been me, but it was him. He took my place on the cross of Calvary. That is a blessed king. I heard about a chief in a village. He was the lawmaker. He he decided what laws were made, how they were to be enforced, and he made judgments, and he handed out sentences in the village, and one day someone came and, and, and complained because they'd been robbed. Someone had come into a hut and stolen some trinkets from the hut, so the, 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 the chief gathered everybody together and he said, now we have a thief among us. If the thief will step forward and return the goods, all will be forgiven. 
But if you will not return the goods, then for every day that goes by, you will receive a lash at the stake in the center of the village. Well, the first day went by and something else was stolen. No one stepped forward. The second day went by and something else was stolen and nothing, no one stepped forward. Finally, after 30 days of things being stolen every day, it was discovered that the chief's elderly mother, with her mind not exactly as it ought to be, had been slipping into little cottages stealing. She was the thief. So now here is this elderly woman, and she had enough enough sense about her to know that she had done something wrong. So everybody wanted her punished, and so they said, it's the chief's mother. He passed the law. And so the debate began. Will law win or will love win? So there came the day for the punishment to be exacted. They took that elderly woman, and they took her to the middle of the village, and they tied her hands over her head to the stake. And the man with the lash, the whip in his hand, drew his hand back to begin the punishment and the chief yelled, stop! Some looked at others and said, love is gonna win. But he didn't stop the sentence. But instead he walked up, put his arms around his mother and said, finish the sentence. And he took those 30 lashes and they stood back and shook their heads and said, law one and love one. I want to say to you, when Jesus went to the cross of Calvary and substituted for me, law was satisfied and love was satisfied. What a blessed king who would take my place at the cross of Calvary. I see the blessedness of his substitution. But then I wondered after I finally could see what my brother was speaking about, I thought, well, if Jesus is in verse 38, then surely he's in verse 39. Look what it said. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Can I say to you, secondly, not only was Christ nailed to the cross so that I could be forgiven, but Christ was given to the cruel so that I would not suffer. Here is not only the blessedness of his substitution, but there is blessedness in his suffering. You know what he said in Isaiah through the prophecy of Isaiah? Here's what he said. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. In this verse, if a man strikes me, I would have the power or ought to or could have the power to strike him back or to stop him from striking me again. But I want you to take a moment and think about the blessed son of God there in the common hall as they have taken him and they have beaten him with a cat of nine tails and now they're buffeting him on his face, plucking the hair from his cheeks. Here is the creator of the universe. Here is omnipotent God. God, here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He could have stopped them. He held their breath in his hand. He didn't have to speak a word. He could have fought a thought and they would have been finished and they would have been gone. But here's what he did. He did not resist their evil because he was paying for their evil. He was paying for their sin and for my sin. He suffered on the cross of Calvary that I will never have to suffer. I thought about 
Romans chapter four and verse two, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And then it said this, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath, unto the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It is as though every time mankind sinned, God had a treasure chest and every time they sinned, the wrath of God was exercised, but he didn't pour it out on man. He put it in that chest and it's been built up that treasure chest down through the eons of time because of the sinfulness of man. But one day on Calvary, God opened up that treasure chest and poured it out. But hallelujah, he didn't pour it out on me and he didn't pour it out on you, but he poured it out on his own blessed son on the cross of Calvary so that you and I would not have to suffer the wrath of God. Paul said much more than being now justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath. Hallelujah, from wrath through him. The old song said, I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took my place. He not only, he not only was my substitute, he suffered in my place. Look at the next verse. You reckon he's in the next verse, verse 40. And if any man will sue thee, at the law and take away thy coat. Let him have thy cloak also. Now we have a little trouble with this verse because in our day, a coat and a cloak is basically the same thing, an outer garment. But as I studied this verse, I discovered that in Christ's day, they are two different things. That the coat is the outer garment and the cloak is the inner garment. So what's going on is somebody... The law has made a demand. And the law said, you got to give up your coat. That's the outer garment. That's this garment. But then the cloak would be the inner garment. Now, if you give up the, if you give up the outer garment, that's one thing. But if you give up the inner garment, then you're stripped. You're naked. You're exposed. And so here in this verse... The Bible's telling us we, we, we go beyond that. We, we don't just give the coat, the coat which was demanded by the law, but we go on and we give the inner garment. Now, I want you to think about this a moment. Here's what the Bible said. The Bible said that they took Jesus and they stripped him. Now, my, my scripture says in the book of Hebrews that all things are naked and open with him with whom we have to do. You know, in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. I believe they were clothed before that, clothed perhaps in, in glory, clothed in innocence, clothed in something. They were clothed. But when they sinned, when they ate of that fruit from the tree, when they sinned against God and disobeyed, they lost their covering. And God came walking in the cool of the evening and he said, Adam, Adam, where art thou? And Adam said, I was naked and ashamed and I hid myself. Uh, and God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree where have I told you not to eat? And you know the story. Adam said, uh, the woman that thou gavest me, uh, she gave to me to eat and I did eat. And then the woman said, the serpent, you, you, know, you know the account of it. But the thought here is that they sin had made them naked. Sin had stripped them. They had no covering and they were ashamed 
ashamed and they ought to have been ashamed and sin ought to make us ashamed. But the truth of the matter is we're still covering ourselves. We're still taking uh, the, the trees, the leaves of the trees and trying to cover ourselves, but it does not do any good with God. Uh, we're naked and open before him with whom we have to do because of our sin. You say, well, preacher, I've wiped my hard drive. You're still, God still knows. You say, I've cleaned out my cash. God still knows. I whispered it in the corner. God still knows. I looked at it when no one is around. God still knows. We're open, we're naked before him. But I read in my Bible, in the book of Revelation, when John, when John got a glimpse of me over yonder in heaven, here's what I read. I read the elders were clothed in white raiment. That linen was the righteousness of Christ. And here's my thought. I'm thinking to myself, I hear is the blessedness of his shame. It was a shameful thing for Christ to be stripped there. But because he was, I will never be ashamed in the presence of God. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I have boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus. When he looks at me, he doesn't see my nakedness. He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my shame. He sees the righteousness of his own son. And I'm welcomed and accepted in the beloved. That's the blessedness of his shame. Not only that, wonder if he'd be in the next verse. And I may have to preach here for a minute. Verse 41. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Reckon we could find him here? I think we can. We've seen the blessedness of his substitution and the blessedness of his suffering and the blessedness of his shame. Here is the blessedness of his sacrifice. Now, this is a Persian law. The Persians established this law. They called it the law of the post, which may be where we get our post office. I'm not sure. But if they were on business for the king, especially delivering mail or delivering the king's orders and, and their horse gave out and you had a horse, they could take your horse because it was business for the king. You couldn't stop them. They, they, you just had to give them whatever they needed. Well, the Romans adapted this law. A Roman mile was a thousand paces. And so the Romans could take, they didn't have to be carrying the mail. They could just be going about their business and they're going along and they've got a heavy pack and they, they see a Jewish fella conquered race and they could just grab him and say, here, carry this. That's what happened to Simon of Cyrene. And they just grabbed him and they were compelled by the law, you were compelled by the law to carry it a thousand paces a mile. So I was reading this fella and he said, that some of the Jews would go outside the door of their house and mark off a thousand paces. And then when they got to the thousand paces, they'd drive a stake into the ground. And you know why they did it? They wanted to know exactly how far they had to go and they weren't going one step further. So if they stepped out of their house and, and a Roman comes and sees them and said, help me with this, I'm going to carry it. But when I get to that stake that I have driven in the ground, I'm done because that's all the law can require of me and I'm not going one step beyond what's required. Let me ask you a question. What could the law require of Christ? The wages of sin is death. Yes. But Peter said of him who did no sin, 
neither was guile found in his mouth. His father said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Pilate said of him, I find no fault in him. He said of himself, lo, I come in the volume of this book. It is written to me to do thy will, O God. And I do always those things which please the father. You know what? The law had no claim on him. So anything he did for me was beyond what was required of him. Anything he did for me was beyond what the law could demand. I want to tell you, Jesus went beyond. He went past what anybody could lawfully and rightfully ask him to do. Nobody had the right to tell him to go to the cross. But here's what he said in the garden. He said, nevertheless, not my will but thine. He went beyond the law. But here's our problem. Are you listening now? Yours and mine. Here's our problem. All of us have been busy driving our stakes. I'll go this far, but I, I, just, I just can't see how I can go any further. I, I got a stake driven in my giving. I can give this much, but now, preacher, one too many offers now. I, I, I can't go beyond this. I can't, I'll jeopardize, I'll jeopardize some things I'm after. We've driven stakes in our service. Well, you know, I just don't think I could help in a Sunday school class. I just don't think, I think it'd be too much to pick somebody up and bring them to church. I think you're asking just a little too much of me to sing in the choir. We've driven driven stakes in our faithfulness. In our faithfulness. Well, you know, uh, preacher, I I can make it Sunday morning and I I can sometimes come to Sunday school, but now Wednesday night and and them special meetings, I mean, you know, I'm working a job, preacher. Our young people have driven stakes. Well, preacher, I want to be involved in the work of God, but you know, I don't want it to affect my popularity. So if it starts to, that's where that stake comes up, and I just, I just can't go beyond that stake. And I know the Lord's dealt with me about service, being, being in service, but you know I'm interested in this girl or I'm interested in that boy and they're not really interested in service. And so I've got that stake driven. You know what would be good? You know what would be good this morning? If we just yank all them stakes up out of the ground. If we just say, Lord, there's no distance too far. There's nothing too much. When I think about what you did for me, that nobody could gonna play, claim on you, that nothing was too, I like that little phrase, and I know the literal meaning of it, but they were talking about the garden in that song a little earlier, and the Bible said he went a little further. I know what it's talking about, but I like that phrase with him. He seemed to always go a little further. Wouldn't it be good if we just yanked the stakes up out of the ground and go a little further. Preacher, that was my limit, but Jesus had no limits with me, so I'm not gonna have any limits with him. You tell me where to go. You tell me what to do. You tell me what to give, and that's what I'll do. I'm pulling up mistakes. Yank them up. Let me read you this passage from Luke 17. You can look if you want to, starting in verse seven. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he's come from the field, go and sit down to meat? And will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I've eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. We are always unprofitable when we've driven a stake. 
And when we put that stake as our limit and say, now I have to do this much, but I'm not going beyond, we have made ourselves unprofitable servants. We ought to be going beyond. You say, preacher, why? Because he did. Why should I not have any limits in my Christian life? Because he didn't have any limits in what he did for us. It is the blessedness of his sacrifice. And then let me say this. Let me just say that, put this little little asterisk on that verse. We would not have been amazed in Jesus' day to see a Roman walk along with a heavy burden and find a Jew and say, hey, carry this. We wouldn't have been amazed. But I'll tell you what would have amazed us. If we'd seen a Roman, the conqueror, walk along and find a Jew with a heavy burden and say, let me carry that for you. That would have amazed us. And that's exactly what happened at Calvary. The the less is blessed of the better. And Jesus, who was the conqueror and the king of kings, came along. And he didn't look at me and say, here, carry my burden. He looked at me and said, let me have that burden, son. Let me carry that burden of sin. Let me carry it to the cross of Calvary. I know the old singers sing the songs that one of these days, I'm going to lay my burden down. No, I'm I'm not laying my burden down one of these days. He took my burden the day I got saved. He carried it to the cross of Calvary. I don't have to bear the burden of sin anymore. He carried it for me it's the blessedness of his sacrifice well you reckon he's in the next verse let's see verse 42 watch it now give to him that asketh thee and from him that would borrow of thee turn not thou away in other words anytime somebody asks you for something You give it to him. One day Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. And he went and sat on a well in the heat of the day. And a woman who lived in wickedness came to that well in the heat of the day, probably hoping nobody else would be there and she'd be all by herself. And here sits Jesus. And I imagine she probably ignored him, but he did not ignore her. She wasn't the least bit interested in him, but he was interested in her. And he said, give me to drink. And she said, how is it that thou ask drink of me, seeing that thou art a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, as a woman of Samaria? He said, seeing the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You remember what he said? He said, if thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that asketh, that saith thee, give thee to drink, thou wouldest ask of him, and he would have given thee. Living water. And I want you to think about what he just said. He said, if you know what you need and you know who it is that has it to give, if you'll ask him, he'll give it to you. This is the blessedness of his salvation. Somebody said, preacher, well, if I do this and if I do that and if I do the other thing, I'll get saved. No, here's what you do. If you know what you need, And you know the only one that can give it to you is Jesus. If you'll come and ask him, you know what he'll do? He'll give it to you. 
He'll save you. We're making this thing so complicated. We're making it so hard. Now, I know I know. God works in our heart. I know the Holy Ghost works in our heart. I understand conviction. But if you've experienced Holy Ghost conviction and you know in your heart that Holy Ghost in, in that convicting power showed you that you were lost and you need a Savior and, he, and he, don't, he don't ever show you that you're lost without showing you how to get out of it. Are you, the devil will come by and try and make you miserable. He'll come by and try and make you miserable. He'll just tell you how sorry. He'll only tell you half the story. He'll tell you how sorry you are and how low down you are. He'll tell you half the story. But the Holy Ghost will always tell you the whole story. He'll say, you're right. You're low down and you're sorry. But there's somebody here can change that. And he'll not just point to your sin. He'll point you to Jesus. And then if you'll ask him, you know what he'll do? He'll save you. It's not how you ask. It's not what words you said. It's not even necessarily how you felt. It's that you believe the gospel. If you'll ask him, he'll save you. Thank God 40 some years ago, almost 40 years ago, I knew I was lost. I knew I was headed for hell. I asked him because I knew he's the only one to save me. And you know what he did? He did exactly what I asked him to do. He saved my soul, made me a new creature in Christ. That's what he does when sinners come and ask. He answers. If you want to be saved, you can be. Oh, somebody said, well, he doesn't save everybody. He saves everybody that asks. He saves everybody that shows up. I like that prodigal son. He got away. He was off in that hog pen, but the Bible said he came to himself. One of my preacher friends said when he came to himself, he dropped the pail, jumped the rail, and hit the trail. And that's what he did. He got on the trail going home to daddy. And when they got to daddy, he said, he said, Father, forgive me. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And before thee, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Problem was, he never got that make me part out. All he got out was, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. And then the Bible said, but the father. You know what? The father heard him ask and the father said yes. And if if you'll call on him, he'll answer you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen. I've heard him say I went to get saved. I never made it to the altar. I got saved when I got out of the pew. I've heard him say that. I have no doubt in it. I got saved in the northernmost bedroom. I got saved 110 North Forest Street in Wayland, Michigan, in the northernmost bedroom of the house, 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, March the 10th, 1980. You say, what'd you do? I asked and he answered. That's what I did. I called and he answered. Thank God for salvation. Hey, don't let the devil beat you over the head. If you want to be saved, God will save you. If you'll call on him, he'll answer you. You know, I was reading about Charles Spurgeon one day. He was visiting a boy's home in England. And uh, there were boys everywhere. They had them everywhere in that home. And it just overwhelmed Mr. Spurgeon. He said, uh, he said the director, he said, now you got so many boys here. He said, they're everywhere. He said, how do you decide what boys to take and what boys not to take? How do you decide? The fellow said, well, did you read the sign when you came in? He said, I missed the sign. He said, it's written over the door. Go out there and look. So he walked outside. He looked up over the door, and over the door it was written, no destitute boy ever refused. You know what I believe it says over the cross? No destitute sinner ever 
ever refuse. God never has turned one down and he won't turn you down. If you want to be saved this morning, come and ask him and I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll say yes, I've been waiting for you. He'll welcome you home like the prodigal's father welcomed him home. Hallelujah. He'll save you if you want to be saved. It's the blessedness of his salvation. You know what I'd like to say before I sit down? We have a blessed king. He is supremely blessed. There isn't anybody like him. There's nobody as wonderful as he is. Nobody can do for you what he can do. Nobody has done for you what he has done. What a blessed king. What a blessed savior we have this morning. If you'd like to be saved, won't you ask him? But tell you this this morning, if you are saved, let's do this. Let's pull some stakes up. Let's say, all right, Lord, I, I've, been, I've been saying this is far enough, but Lord, yeah. you never said that with me. That's right. So I'm yanking that stake out of the ground this morning. Oh, God you show me, Lord, you lead me. Where you, we sing it, where he leads me, I will follow. Yes, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to yank that stake out of the ground. Yes. Let's go the second mile and the third mile and the fourth mile and the fifth mile because that's what he did for us.